Welcome to Gathering Gold, a podcast for highly sensitive souls. I'm Cheryl Paul, a counselor trained in the Jungian depth psychological tradition. And I'm Victoria Russell, Cheryl's niece and co-host. This podcast explores some of the themes highlighted in my book, The Wisdom of Anxiety, and my Conscious Transitions blog. Join us as we dive into the realms of our inner worlds to ask deep questions, grow more self-trust and self-love, and embrace sensitivity, creativity, and the rhythms of the natural world. If you would like to connect with me, Victoria, and others in the Gathering Gold listener community and support the podcast to help us continue our work, please consider joining our Patreon at patreon.com slash gatheringgold. To learn more about Cheryl's course offerings, including courses to support you in breaking free from anxiety in all forms, learning to trust yourself, and becoming more comfortable with uncertainty, please visit Cheryl's website, conscious-transitions.com. You can also find us on Instagram, Cheryl is at Wisdom of Anxiety, and I am at Perennials Podcast. Thank you for listening. I am so excited to be here with Stuart Ralph, who um, runs the Instagram page, the OCD Stories, and the podcast, the extraordinary podcast, I should say, OCD Stories. I first encountered your work, Stu, several years ago, I guess through Instagram, and we started to connect there and have since become colleagues, and I think um, both have an interest in sort of, well, obviously OCD in general, but um, kind of undercurrents and themes and root causes and topics that aren't typically discussed in mainstream OCD conversations. So. Stu and I have had several really fascinating Zoom chats over the years, and I was a guest on his podcast a couple of times, first in 2021, I think. Um, And so Victoria and I dreamed and hoped that you would be willing to be a guest on our podcast, and here we are to explore OCD as best we can. Welcome. Thank you so much for being here with us. Yeah, thank you for having me. And um, I've listened to your podcast, both yours, in, well, since episode one, it was Roots and Crowns. Is that what it's called? <laughs> yes. Yeah. So I remember listening to that and I've, I've followed it since. So it's a real pleasure to be here. Nice. A meeting of podcasts. Um, so I'm going to start with the questions that you always start your podcast with which are, how did you get interested in OCD? What's your OCD story, as much or as little as you want to share? Yeah, Um, so I got interested in it. Well, I was kind of forced to be, I guess, through my own story Um, as early as seven. uh, Actually, it was in America was my earliest memory. Um, Yeah, I always kind of joked that it was America that gave me OCD. And uh, (laughs) and I had to be honest, apart from Colorado, Every time I go back to America, it really triggers me. Mm. So it could be something to do with just the overwhelming nature and size of the country. And, you mm. know, there's there's V8 pickup trucks everywhere or, um, yeah, everything's bigger, right? Um, <laughs> but, um, but, yeah, Colorado doesn't do it. And I think that's the nature and the calmness of it and seeing the mountains all the time. That's very much what soothes me. But mm. always love to go to America. But, yeah, so it was Florida in particular, and we were there for, I always get this wrong. Is it Disney World or Disneyland? Disney well, World. Disney World. Um, I've had so many people correct me over the years in the audience. They shout <laughs> out what it is. Um, yeah. And yeah, and it was like an intrusive thought. So we we landed and my, my dad was in bed in the hotel because I think, I don't know, it was either jet lag, plain food or something like that. He was unwell. And I remember sitting, it was either in a Denny's or a Wendy's. Uh, with my mum and my brother and I was just I didn't know at the time what anxiety was but in hindsight that's what it was I was overwhelmed uh, getting lots of these intrusive images of this big tarantula slowly kind of 
crawling up my dad um, mm. with this, the feeling of it was, it felt like a premonition at the time that he was going to die. He was going to get bitten. And um, I was having this premonition and I wasn't saying anything. So when we go back to the room, it's going to be all my fault and blah, 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 blah. I didn't say anything. Um, I'm not sure why. And anyway, got back and obviously he hadn't, well, he may have been bit, but he didn't die. So, um, uh, and then the same holiday, I'd started to get intrusive thoughts about sharks in the pool. Like this is one of my weirdest ones. I'd be in the pool and I would like be in there for about a meter, jump out the other side, get as far away from the edge because yeah, I, it was what, you know, what Florida's like in June or July, it's ridiculously hot and muggy mm. and and I was seven years old and I wanted to swim and have fun. And so mm -hmm. I, although there was this extreme fear every time I went in, I still went in, you know, mm -hmm. and one time my brother held me in because he thought it was funny and I was like panicking and freaking out. Um, mm -hmm. And yeah, you know, to this day, if I swim in a swimming pool, I'll still get those intrusive images of sharks. Um, mm -hmm. But I don't get out, obviously. I keep swimming. I tell my brain good. I hope it eats me and like, you know, even visualize it doing it and just keeps it, you know, and it's, so that's one of my exposures at the minute is I'm trying to do like open water swimming and uh, lakes and stuff like that, which mm. is terrifying. Um, even obviously in lakes, there's no sharks. No sharks. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah. Something's gone massively wrong if there is one in there. <laughs> and, uh, and that's where it started. And then it's morphed over the years into sort of relationship OCD in my twenties before that was like kind of existential or if I walk if I don't do this thing right walking back and forth past something or tapping something I will be in almost like another dimension where I'll still be with my family this is when I was a young mm. kid mm. but it won't really be the same kind of dimension I, I can never put words to this but it's it was the weirdest thing so that was scary mm. to me mm. um and yeah if I didn't do certain compulsions someone would die in Africa or oh, it was real far mm. out there um, but yeah, and then, yeah, in my twenties, it was a relationship OCD all throughout my twenties. And then it was, um, sort of real event OCD. And that was the one that tipped it for me. That was like, I have to do something about this now. Um, mm. so that's a kind of real whistle stop tour. I could obviously share my story for hours, but mm -hmm. there's more to discuss. Mm -hmm. And thank you for sharing that. And then from there, what was the segue into working professionally? with OCD. Yeah. So I had started blogging. I can't remember. No, about eight years ago, I started blogging about OCD and, and then shortly after that, about six months, I started the podcast. Mm. Um, and it was very quick into the podcast. I was like, I, I want to be a therapist. Mm. Uh, so I started my retraining journey. It took me about five years cause I didn't have an undergrad in psychology. So mm -hmm. I had to do a conversion masters one year and then do the full training as a therapist. And then I've been practicing now for two years um, in private practice with children and young people. Um, mm -hmm. My caseload is 50, 60% OCD. And then I keep the rest wider um, just to keep my skills sharp. And yeah, that, that was it really. But I mean, when I look back, when I was 15, I remember being in a like a fake interview that the school put on to teach us how to be good at interviews, basically. And I remember he asked me what I wanted to do. And I said, I wanted to be a psychologist, which mm. at the time in my mind meant therapist, which of course some psychologists, especially clinical psychologists do do therapy. Um, obviously there are many other types of psychologists that don't necessarily practice therapy. Um, but yeah, so it was, it was like a gut instinct. I'd never, no one in my family was a therapist. I knew no therapist. I knew, I never knew anyone that went to a therapist. Mm. Um, I don't remember seeing any TV shows, but it felt incredibly true when the words came out of my mouth. Mm. And I was terrible. I was terrible um, academically when I was younger. So <laughs> when I went to do A levels, which is your high school basically, that sort of 16, 17 age, um, the I didn't have the grades, and they were like, "Look, because I wanted to do psychology and sociology," and they said, "Look, if you do this, we think you're going to struggle, and it will be too much." and they were, they were nice about it, but obviously I didn't do it. Mm -hmm. um, but I'm kind of glad I needed the life experience. Um, but what I will say to that is for any teachers listening is let the kids struggle. If they're going to be passionate about it, let them struggle. You know, yes. the reason I, I did so bad in school is I didn't like it. Mm -hmm. you know? 
whereas psychology I read it for fun and you know, yes. dedicate my time to it so it's yeah. yes yeah mm-hmm. there's so much in your story that we could lift up and highlight and I'm curious what Victoria was writing down um just one question that comes to mind for me is at its worst when you were in the worst of OCD yeah how what did that look like how many hours a day how much did it intervene interrupt your life yeah so it was pretty heavy all throughout my childhood and it waxed and waned a bit during university I think because I was so engaged I I was living out at home I was so had a new group of friends I was playing basketball for the the university team and that was taking all my energy and interest and I was actually enjoying learning for the first time in my life Mm. um and but yeah other than that and then it got worse as I got into my career but yeah throughout childhood the worst point was when I was uh, it was roughly about the whole time I was 14 it then tipped into 15 probably it was actually mm. more like body dysmorphic disorder mm-hmm. um, which for me just felt like a variation of OCD this is just where my brain was now fixated on and worrying about yeah. um, I won't share what I was worried about but I was looking in the mirror for probably hours in the day Mm. buying various products to kind of correct I'm doing air quotes people can't see correct Mm. my floor flaws Mm -hmm. um and and the scariest thing about that was I felt like and at school I would do everything I could to hide my flaws I would be in the bathroom constantly checking like um with OCD I've always known when I've, whenever I've figured out a theme is OCD, I've always known it was ridiculous and far out. And so I had an insight with BDD. I had no insight. When I looked mm. in the mirror, I saw what my brain had projected, which wasn't there. Um, it wasn't a hallucination, but it was, it, there's no other words I can really use to describe it. Like a distortion. Uh, you were yeah, seeing distortion. it distorted. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And yeah, and the more you worry, the more you believe it. And there was not even 1% on my brain that thought this was fake. I completely bought into it. And because I bought into it, that made me think I'm never going to be loved. I'm never going to have a future. Mm. No one will employ me. No one will marry me. I won't have kids. That made me quite depressed to the point. The only time in my life where I've really felt suicidal mm. and started to think about it. Um, mm. That was definitely the worst. Yeah. And you weren't talking to anybody at no. this point about what was going on. Your, your parents had no idea, even though no. you were in the bathroom for hours and they, yeah. they weren't seeing the compulsions. And of course there was so much less information back then about OCD. So they may yeah. not have even known what to look for, but it never came yeah. up. No, no, exactly. Um, times were different. Uh, emotional vocabulary wasn't as, as, as good as it is now. Yes. Not as perfect yet, but, um, and yeah, you know, they, I think we used to call OCD these, secret illness yeah and mm. that was like it's it's nickname um and that very felt very true for me as a kid I hid all of my compulsions you know whereas mm. and so uh, yeah if anyone came I would quickly hide it or disguise it or there was a lot of shame whereas the kids I work with now they tell their parents mm-hmm. you know they, they'll just open up and I'm sure there's many kids that still hide it but I think we're way more open as a society and I think that's incredible but yeah, as yes. a, for me, when I was a kid, it was I can't say anything because when I was nine, it was a clear memory of getting stuck crossing this door for about half an hour mm. uh, until it felt right. Uh, mm-hmm. My parents were downstairs watching TV and I'm not sure where my brother was, but it was dark. And I just remember sort of breaking down and crying and thinking this can't be normal. This was the first mm. time I realized something's wrong here. Um, but yeah, that was a really tough memory. That always sticks out in my head. Yes. Uh, yeah. Yes. Well, it's almost like a metaphor for how it feels, like just being stuck hmm. over and over, like you're trying to move and you yeah. can't, <laughs> and you can't tell anyone. Yeah. Yes, the you aloneness in it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. And the thought I had in that moment was I need to tell someone, but the other thought was I can't because if I do, I'm going to get locked up, put in a straitjacket. Mm-hmm. I won't see my family. And it wasn't that my parents would lock me up. It was that mm-hmm. it wouldn't be their choice. I would be taking, mm-hmm. taken away. Oh, um, so terrifying. Yeah, my brain really kept me quiet, you know. Yes, um, yes. Yeah. Some things stand out for me in terms of the deeper 
elements of OCD, even what you're saying about, well, to go back to the very earliest memories of being in Florida, which pretty overwhelming state to begin with, um, not our calmest state of the United States. Being out of your country, maybe, I don't know if that was the first time you had been out of the country. May have been, yeah. Um, yeah. So being in a foreign land and your dad separate from everybody else, not really knowing what's going on with him, getting this intrusive image of the tarantula. Hmm. So he, what I hear in there are when I'm going into what's underneath, the separation anxiety that I think shows up very strongly for people with OCD and highly sensitive people. So the separation from your homeland, from your country, mm. separation from your dad, the uncertainty of what's ha happening there, I don't know. Um, and then right on the heels of that, that sense of over-responsibility, it's going to be my fault if something happens to mm. him. I have to prevent. Like if I don't do this, something someone's going to die in Africa. Um, but but we hear that so often, right? Of it's my responsibility to keep everybody safe, and I hear that as the secondary layer, the first layer underneath the shame, because I hear that as a shame wound. It's somehow going to be my fault, and underneath that was the fragmentation, the separation, the groundlessness, right? The, the unrootedness of I'm in a foreign land and I'm in this really overwhelming place, right? And so I'm already feeling fragmented and unrooted. Yeah. And so my brain gives me this image as an illusion of control. If I can control this, I can keep my dad safe. And I can keep us all together. Yeah. Right. Yeah. No, I agree. Yeah. Yeah. You're probably not far off there. Um, there was just on that, there, there was a few things like, uh, I think now the more I look at it, the more I think something was kind of breaking open in my brain at that point. Mm. Um, and what I mean by that is, um, well, my nan passed away who I was quite close with six months prior right mm -hmm. which is grief could be yes. enough yeah, huge enough. loss that yeah, could exactly. be enough um and then i remember and there was always issue me and my brother are good now but we did not have a good relationship at all and actually florida credit to florida it was the first time in our in our life at that point that we had not argued for like two weeks straight mm. um because disney world was just incredible and universal studios and all of that mm -hmm. um and Gator World or whatever it was called. That was awesome. Um, but anyway, uh, I had, I think I've told you this before, Cheryl, I had two dreams a couple of weeks before I went to America that I have no other words than premonitions for them. Like mm -hmm. it's never happened to me since. Uh, and the only one I can actually remember was I had a dream about the car rental place. And I had not seen, as far as I'm aware, I had not seen any pictures or anything like that. And when I got to the car rental, I remembered the dream. It wasn't deja vu. I, I'm very familiar with that. It was, I dreamed about this. Because I remembered the dream explicitly before I went. And then I got there and this is exactly the same as my mm. dream. Mm -hmm. So there was something, I don't know, something shifting in my brain and my psyche at that time. Yes. And then OCD was like the, it had split and here it is. <laughs> the Yeah, the chaos. Yes. And, you know, I think this is one of the more far out things that I say, but I do believe that people prone to OCD um, and are so often on the highly, highly sensitive person spectrum, not just HSP, but highly, highly, um, are spiritually open in a way that typical people are not and are in touch with some other kind of mystical existence reality. And that because we are not guided in that way, we don't have the elders, the shamans guiding us, that 
it gets morphed and mutated into this sort of aberrant um, attempt to create structure and order. But that's so interesting that there was an opening in your brain. There was an opening in your consciousness, we might say, that you had these premonitory dreams. Um, you had been open to also the world of, of death in a very personal way, hmm. which brings so much grief. And again, we don't have proper grief rituals and containers. And so you were left wide open. Your heart had been shattered probably for the first time in that way, um, hmm. that you were close to her and she died and she's gone. But also from, from this other spiritual or non-material perspective that now there's this awareness of death. And again, without the, the teachings, the holdings, the rituals, the mentoring, um, something opened in you, but it couldn't go where I think it was meant to go. Right? Yeah. And OCD came in to kind of rescue you in a way, mm. to give you something to hang on to. Right to give you something, something for your brain to grasp onto. Yeah, sense when of you're feeling yeah, sense of control when you're feeling groundless, uprooted, opened. I mean, seven is also one of those. It's a, it's a developmental age where things are shifting, things are opening. Mm. Right, it's sort of the first end of childhood in a certain way. Yeah. Um. So, I don't know, Victoria. I'm so curious where well I was just having so many I mean deeply listening to your story and like having these flashbacks as you were talking um just of you know I was I think 10 was when I was diagnosed with OCD but mm. I think it started for me probably by age six or so and um your podcast is just so beautiful because like you said like I still I think I don't know that I ever heard uh, OCD stories until I listened to your podcast a few years ago. Like other mm -hmm. than I think that movie, what's it called? As Good As It Gets with uh, Jack Nicholson. I think that was it. I saw that as a kid and I was like, oh, that's me, you know, a 65-year-old man. <laughs> I'm nine, but wow, he's not stepping on the cracks in the sidewalk. That's what I do, you know. Um, mm. And so I just thank you for it's like just your presence and what you bring brings that uh visibility and compassion because like you said there's so many stories that feel so outlandish or scary to share and even if you know rationally at this point as an adult like okay this is OCD there's that moment where you're like is someone listening going to think <laughs> you know that I'm just Crazy, crazy, yeah. or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, and so, I just thank you for that. And um, I, I'm very curious as part of your story when you decided to become a therapist yourself, because I'm now in training. Um, yeah, and awesome. something that I wonder about is, and I know I still have more work to do with OCD myself, um, because it is the doubt disorder, and I feel like in therapy there's so much room for gray area and just taking what you know and making the best decision you you can but leading with some confidence um mm -hmm. how has ocd shown up like how did it show up in your training did you ever was that ever an area where you were worried or had to do some work it you know it didn't come up massively in my training i think there were moments around when you talk about safeguarding a young person. I guess it would have happened if I was working with adults, um, you know, if they were suicidal or something like that mm. or, or at risk from someone else. That definitely triggers that sort of hypervigilance, hyper-responsibility. Right. Um, and it still does now if there's an issue, but I kind of know the steps. I put the steps into place and then just have to trust that I've done enough, Yeah. Um, which then it's just hard for every therapist at that point. Um, but that being said, like I did have six months into working as a qualified therapist, six months, yeah, let's say six months. Um, I had a bit of a relapse. It was more 
panic disorder, but it felt very much like OCD at the time or health anxiety. I was very much worried I was going to pass out in session. Mm. I felt like I was getting tunnel vision. And for about a month, I I didn't know it was a, let's just call it OCD for argument's sake. I didn't know it was there. And um, even though I'm, you know, I'm trained, I've had it for years and I still couldn't spot the symptoms. Mm. Uh, I would then do compulsions like I was taking excessive paracetamol because in case if I get a migraine or blah, 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 I was, I was making sure I wasn't wearing a t-shirt under my shirt because if I get too hot, I start mm. to feel like I'm going to pass out and mm. all these little micro compulsions. Mm-hmm. And I was just sitting in the therapy chair constantly like, I need to get out of here. At times my anxiety would hit like a nine and I was like, I want to run. Like my brain's telling me run, run, run. And I'm like, I can't, I can't run. Uh, and then when I figured out what it was, I, I started putting the work in place and, and trying to figure it all out. Um, but if it took me like almost a year to get over that, to feel calm again in session. Mm. Uh, and there mm. were many occasions where I literally wanted to just run out of session. And I had to get to the point where I would rather die in this chair than leave <laughs> it. That was my mm. mentality. Mm. Um, yeah, and it, it's a lot better now. I also saw a link though, this is a side note of stuff, something that was going on in my life that I wasn't dealing with because when that got better, my symptoms dramatically went down. Mm -hmm. Now I was also doing exposure therapy alongside it around this, but even when I was doing exposure therapy, it was still not making quick gains Mm -hmm. until I I resolved that thing or at least got it in check. Um, Mm -hmm. So to answer your question, not massively, but what you'll find is you'll just use it as, um, inspiration so when I had that relapse it really humbled me because when I was doing exposure work with a client I could be like oh I'm feeling exactly the same as you are right now I wouldn't say that in my head like and it it really made me connect with what we're asking them to do the brave things that I was having to sit there and do it myself you know four Mm. times a day four days a week um so yeah, it was. I, I just tried to focus on that and and just keep your values in mind. Why are you doing this? You know. Yeah. So then, no matter what you face, this is why I'm showing up. So I can bring this anxiety with me because it's it's about service. You know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You'll be fine. Is my answer. <laughs> Thank you. Mm-hmm. Appreciate that. Nice. I'm having this feeling as I'm sitting here with the two of you, who I um, adore so much, <laughs> both of you that. There's something that I think happens, and I'm wondering um, if you can both speak to this, when you're in the company of somebody else who has OCD, and there's this knowing and kinship, because it's such a particular thing, and something like we're saying that only recently has been more talked about, um, that I think if you live with somebody with OCD is you can get pretty close, but if you are somebody who has or has had OCD, then there's this, there's just like a, a, like I can just see Victoria when, when Stu's talking, there's such a deep head nodding. There's such a deep, like full body. It's not just your head. It's like, yes, 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 yes. And I just, you know, I've wondered this before, like when I've watched um, Pete Weiss's series on the on the extreme OCD camp, and you and I have talked about this too, this element of healing that maybe can only come in the in the resonance, in the in the talking with other people who struggle in the exact way that you struggle. Of course, this is true for anything, if it's anxiety or panic attacks, and you know, of course, those are things I'm deeply personally familiar with. But I don't know if there's an extra layer of it with OCD because it's, um, I don't know. It's just the sense I'm having as I'm watching the two of you like grok each other. Yeah. I mean, um, I guess what comes to my mind is we, we, as humans, we, I'm just thinking on the spot here. We, we always want to find a place of home. So although none of us like OCD, if Victoria shares her experiences, or Cheryl, you share yours with panic and stuff. I'm going to connect with that and relate to it, right? It's going to mm-hmm. feel familiar, even if that familiar is a scary familiar. Yes. You know? um, and it just reminded me, we spoke about me going to America before. You know, I, 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 I love Americans. I get on with them. 
Um, but if I hear a British accent there, I'm just going to feel a certain sense of comfort, you know? Yeah. Even if I might not like them if they were in England and I was there, if I hear it in another country, if it's in France, somewhere else, I'm going to feel connected, safe. There's going to be something grounding in that. Yeah. So I think as humans, we're always looking for that place of home. And I think, mm -hmm. yeah, with OCD, it's, it's, that's why I like my camp, right? Mm -hmm. You know, we're around the campfire sharing. Um, we don't have to caveat or the campers don't have to caveat what an intrusive thought is or why they wouldn't actually, they don't actually want to stab someone. You know, mm -hmm. they don't have to uh, say those words. They just say, oh, I've been having thoughts of hurting people and nothing yes. else needs to be said. Yes. You know, it's just such a, a comforting thing. Yeah. Mm, so deeply comforting. Mm. My three younger siblings have all been diagnosed with OCD. Oh, wow. But that feels very different to me. I think as their older sibling, like I just feel the need to show them strength and try to inspire them and be there for them. I don't share um, unless I feel like it will help them, you know, in some way. But so I'm kind of realizing a lot of things in this conversation. Yeah. That community is so important. I think. I don't say everyone, but I'll just speak generally. I think everyone would benefit from just having a friend with a similar thought process and compulsions and it doesn't have to be the same theme, but like, you know, just to share and, and there's obviously downsides to support groups yeah. and stuff where people can, they're, they're stuck in their symptoms too much and they're not necessarily mm -hmm. working on it. Um, but support groups can also be incredible too. But but even forgetting support groups, like I used to run a meetup, which was just us all going to a pub in London and it would vary, but it was roughly 10 people a time, sometimes less. Mm. And we'd just be having a drink and chatting. And it was, it was so nice to develop friends. And one of those people I met there is now kind of a colleague and, and future business mm. partner of mine, mm. you know? So mm. um, yeah, the, those friendships are really special. Yeah. I think that's the difference between like you can listen to the OCD stories and hear other people talking about their OCD and that's deeply comforting. But the difference between that and actually being in conversation mm -hmm. with somebody and you being able to, of course, share some of your story, even mm -hmm. just a little bit and knowing that the other person a hundred percent gets what you're saying. So you are around other people with OCD, but in a way where you are the big sister and you're the the wise one and you're the guide and you don't want to <laughs> disclose too much, right? But mm -hmm. what it is to be able to share in that way where you are completely understood. Yeah. Um, so one of the pieces I wanted to bring here, Stu, is, and you mentioned, and I think this is a good segue, that when you were in college your symptoms abated and you listed several possible reasons for that. You were engaged, you were um, playing basketball, you were on the team, you had, so you were physically in your body, mm -hmm. you were, had that kind of tribal, yep. again, that sense of home and belonging that I think is, so we know is so key yeah. um, to the human experience. And, Yet, in the mainstream OCD world, people don't like to talk about root causes. Yes, we understand that exercise is important, um, mm. but we don't like to go, and you even made reference to it about an issue that you were dealing with um, when you were in your, in your later studies, but you had to deal with really what was at the root in addition to doing the ERP before you gained some traction. Yeah. And so... <clears throat> Um, you know, I think that there's this general belief in the mainstream OCD community that OCD is just a brain misfiring, it's genetic, um, and that the treatment is to rewire the brain and teach it that the things it is perceiving as dangerous are not actual threats. All good. And then you have people where there is a psychodynamic or they bring in a trauma component that OCD, there's a recognition that OCD is also can be a symptom of deeper pain and wounds that need attention. And you've been brave. I think you're brave to bring in these conversations to your podcast, um, knowing that the more mainstream OCD community does not 
you know, it's almost like a dirty word to talk about psychodynamic elements. Um, but Pete Weiss, Michael Greenberg, and I'm just curious what what your views are on you know I know I I know that you are a strong supporter of ERP and I know you talk a lot about ACT and and values based work and yet you're also interested in those deeper psychodynamic elements. So anything that you'd like to speak to on that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think from day one with the podcast, I was very open-minded. Like I, um, and that was partly me just wanting answers for my own recovery. Right. So, Mm -hmm. um, you know, I did an episode on, it was inference based therapy at the time. It's since been rebranded to inference, um, based cognitive behavioral therapy which was actually mm. a smart rebranding because it's been way more popular since they did that. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I covered that in 2016, early 2016. And in the last year, you know, 2022, 2023, it's become really popular. Mm. So so I guess what I'm saying is like the, the podcast was, you know, covering that when no one cared. No one cared about that episode when I put it out, whereas mm-hmm. now it's the hot topic. So mm. So there's been a few times that's happened. I've not caught every trend, but like, and that's only the only reason that's happened is because I've stayed curious, you know, um, you know, so I've covered compassion focused therapy not too long ago. And that's something I use in my own therapy. I can imagine that's going to come more popular in the next mm. five years for OCD mm. specifically. Um, but yeah, more from psychodynamic lens. I mean, partly my training was, was quite heavily psychodynamic. So, and humanistic. So, uh, that kind of instilled in me the open-mindedness in that area and um, yeah looking at the the bigger psychological frames as far back as what Freud was saying and um, Melanie Klein and uh, Anna mm-hmm. Freud Freud's daughter uh, and then more modern modern uh, models like Malin which I covered with uh, Dr. Michael Greenberg mm-hmm. um yeah. And I think also, you know, in Britain, we have such a rich history of, of psychoanalysis, you know, Freud ended up dying here, um, where he only came in the last year of his life and he fled, uh, Austria. Mm. Um, and then, and then we have the Tavistock and all of that, which, which, and Donald, um, Donald Winnicott and, you know, I think Beyond was in England, but yeah, I guess what I'm saying is it, it really culminated here, then spread out to the States and everywhere else. So it's kind of maybe in my blood a bit, but there's just, I don't know if there's a root cause for OCD, but I, what I do know is we haven't proven there isn't one. So, mm. you know, over the last six, seven years, I've been in uh, therapy, um, kind of a mix between humanistic and psychodynamic. And Mm -hmm. that's proven really helpful for me for like lots of areas that seemingly unrelated to OCD. It's really helped me heal family stuff and and how I was showing up in the world or not showing up more importantly and confidence and all of that. It's really helped me. And that was going to some of those deeper past places, you know, and healing some Mm -hmm. of those wounds. Um, So I think, I think healing wounds is important because I think we all have them. They don't have to be big. We have this idea they have to look big, but it's mm-hmm. really how they feel. Um, if we take trauma, we know based on the studies for OCD, it's, it's different studies find different things. One study found 30% of cases uh, happened after a trauma. Another study found 82%, I believe, or up to 82%, which if you think that's correct, then that's insane. That's almost wow. saying OCD is a response to trauma based on mm-hmm. that study. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know if I fully agree with that, but it's clearly saying like just trauma alone that there's stuff that triggered it. Um, but yeah, I, I can look at my life and say OCD for me was as a way of gaining a sense of control in a, mm-hmm. in a world I felt I had zero. Um, yes. And I've had many stories similar to that. Yeah. I think those are very interesting studies that show very different results, which just goes to show that we have to take all of these studies with some grain of salt because we know that there are so many variables that one study showed, what, 30% and one showed 82% as being linked to trauma. Um, So that's a a wide gap. Um, But I also wonder, 
how people define trauma because we think of trauma as somebody died or divorce or, you know, like big trauma. And I think we tend to overlook the ways that um, an incident, even a moment in time might be, might register as a trauma, especially for a highly sensitive child that would never register on any questionnaire or any scale as a trauma. So I know from working with my clients who are all highly sensitive people that they often don't have obvious big trauma, but there are plenty of incidences um, where they, for example, their mother was supposed to come home from work at 7 and she didn't get home until 7.10. And in those 10 minutes... Where is she? What's happened? She's dead. Yeah. Right. In those 10 minutes, my mother is dead. And that, and for a five-year-old, that could be a traumatic experience to actually truly believe Mm -hmm. my mom died. Yeah. Right. And I mean, that's, we could say kind of an intrusive OCD thought. Maybe there was something else that happened before that even that would be a different kind of trauma or... Again, going back to the separation piece of maybe being left somewhere, um, or let's reverse the example of I'm waiting at school and my mother doesn't show up. So now I'm not even home Hmm. and I'm having the separation anxiety and the true terror that I am alone in the world and nobody will ever come for me, right? I don't think that would ever show up on a questionnaire or, you know, a scale of list your traumas. Um, So just these other elements that I think get overlooked when we're looking at possible root causes. And even in a study like that to say 30% versus 82%, I think we have to then question how are they defining trauma? You know, exactly a hundred percent. Yeah. I mean, you know, through the years of, and, and, and well, for the first couple of years of my therapist, I basically said, you know, I don't want to talk about OCD because she wasn't CBT trained and I was like, I just don't want to go there. I don't want to get triggered. And now I'll, I'll happily bring it up because I know what to do if I get triggered. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, yeah, but I guess as I went through that therapy, I was hit more and more of like, and, and someone could argue and say, well, you know, the therapist was just helping you make mountains out of molehills or whatever. But for me, it was really like, oh, I've never looked at it that way. Or I would mm-hmm. share something with her and I would see her kind of tear up a bit. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking, I'm completely calm telling this. Like, why are you tearing up? Mm-hmm. Uh, but those moments were really powerful for me because it showed me, oh, well, I'm really disconnected from this. And then as I thought about it, I was like, yeah, she's right. That That's pretty mm-hmm. messed up or sad. Mm-hmm. you know. But on the surface, um, it, it may not have looked that way, but it took a long-term therapy to discover some of that and and I've I've cleansed it I've worked through it I've healed those wounds I'm in the process still but most of them and it's made a huge difference to my life that those things wouldn't have shown up on a questionnaire you know that as a problem um Mm -hmm. but yet they would have driven my life and my behavior until the day I died isn't that what Jung said or something like that of like something about I don't have any to do with the shadow, but something about owning it. And if we don't bring it in front of us, it will drive our behavior and we'll call it fate. It was something along mm-hmm. those lines. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that, that was how yes. it was going for me, you know? Um, yeah. Till I owned yeah. it and it was, yeah. So, mm. yeah. I mean, I mean, the other thing I'll say on that is I think when you start talking about the past, we can look at it as, oh, it's us blaming others or, or parents or whatever. And, and look, some some cases that might be it, right? It might be that we had real, real bad relationships with caregivers and stuff like that or neglect or whatever it was. But a lot of the time it's not. The parents might have been really loving and really there, but they might the, the kid might have just been incredibly highly sensitive mm-hmm. and then something happened like bullying in the school or their cousins moved away and they were really close to their cousins and that's a wound because now where have they gone you know at a young age so it's nothing really to do with the parents or upbringing so I think that's worth worth sharing it's we can be affected by things that on the surface are just have to happen and they're not necessarily bad but because we're sensitive it gets received that way I've always been fascinated too by 
is there a potential link with certain religions or religious practices in OCD mm. in terms of like mm. growing up Catholic in a highly ritualistic um, environment, but the ritual was kind of scary. Like, you know, um, because my uh, compulsions when I was young had a lot to do with like, well, if I pray this many times, then this won't happen, you know? Yeah. Um, so I'm always just very interested to um, in there's so many factors in our environment and maybe it's just, you know, my brain was primed for that. And then that was a, yeah, a, a place where it, things could get really sticky, but um, I find that kind of fascinating too. Yeah, it is. I, I don't know any studies on that, but a hundred percent religion can be a trigger as, as anything can, but a religion holds so much weight to it and so yeah. much, well, it's, it's literally your afterlife, right? Depending on what religion you believe in, but you know, the big ones, it's your afterlife. And that's a very scary thing. And I remember as a young kid having reoccurring dreams about going to heaven. Actually, that was, that was like hell for me because eternity wasn't a positive thing in my young mind. I would, mm -hmm. I, a very young age, like four or five, or maybe five or six, I'd be like, well, if it doesn't end, that's not fun. That will eventually get boring and that yeah. will be hell and torture. And you know, my brain would be tortured by that because this idea of God and religion was so weighty. And I know America is very, very religious still, um, especially in the South and places like that. And but even in Colorado, when I was there recently, there's churches on every corner almost, um, which I'm not saying is a bad thing, but if you're growing up in that environment, and maybe you get the wrong minister who's who's talking very brimstone and fire mm -hmm. and not from Jesus's love and da, 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 da. Yeah. that's going to be terrifying for a young child who who's sensitive, you know, and their, their brain is going to latch onto that. So yeah, anything yeah. could be a trigger, but religion comes with a certain amount of weight and and it, you know Catholicism maybe a certain amount of guilt. And that's not to knock any Catholics listening, just mm -hmm. compared to C of E Church of England, I'm saying, um, which is Christians here. Um, mm -hmm. but there's maybe a bit less of that. Mm -hmm. Hmm. Yeah. I'm thinking about just the OCD community in general and the amazing people that you have on your podcast. And I've learned so much from, and I've heard at least a few of them say, we are, we are not where we want to be as far as we've come with OCD treatment. We are not where we want to be. We are well aware that we fall short a lot, um, mm. that ERP has a, I don't know, 40% or 35. What, what's the percentage of ERP effectiveness? Uh, I think it's like 60. 60%. Okay. Yeah, not, it's not and 60. Then, I don't think 60% complete reduction. It's like 60%, a certain amount of symptom relief. Okay. I, I so think. 60% of people get some symptom relief. Yeah. Um, medication, you know, maybe 30 to 40%. Is that? Um, I'm not sure on that. Might be 50, but yeah, it's not. Okay. So we're somewhere in like, I think the 40 to 60% for yeah. some relief with ERP and medication, mm -hmm. which are the main offerings that we have yes. right, in, mm -hmm. in the mainstream OCD community. Um, and with humility, people saying that's not good enough, right? Mm -hmm. We, we have not cracked this code. There are pieces that we are clearly missing. Um, and I'm just curious what you think about that, how you feel about that, where you see th that the OCD community going or the research going or any thoughts you have about, yeah. um, how far we are from where we would like to be with treatment. Yeah. Yeah. Um, firstly, I definitely, I think like calling ERP the gold standard, I think that's what everyone calls it. I think is, I understood why they did it, did it initially because they need to disseminate it and people need to learn, therapists need to learn it and use it. But I think it can actually be harmful now because if I hear the word gold standard as someone who hasn't read the literature, I'm going to think, oh, it's perfect. Right. You know? And, and it's not, and, and Michael Greenberg said this on my podcast, we need to stop, like, he didn't say idolize, but I'm going to say that I idolizing ERP, mm -hmm. like it's great, 
and it's very useful for many people. And I use it with every single one of my clients initially and try it out. But I'm under no illusion that it's a panacea. Mm-hmm. Um, I think those numbers are quite low because we've got various things to factor in, like therapeutic relationships important. So if the therapist in the trial, you as a client may not get on with them, that's going to mm-hmm. impact um you know effectiveness so there's a certain amount of that there's there's might be other things in the people's life that make them not right for erp in that time or maybe a physical thing um that's getting in the way or you know comorbidities and other stuff so i think with an ocd specialist it's going to be higher than 60 percent, but it's Mm. still not going to be 100 Mm percent. you know um so for me, I'm very, I trained as integratively. So I'm very passionate about what can be integrated. So I integrate uh, acceptance commitment therapy, which makes it a bit more tolerable and tries to build psychological flexibility while helping the person mm-hmm. live a life of value and focus on their values. Um, and compassion focused therapy is another one of the main ones, which is trying to raise that in a compassionate voice um, just to support them and motivate them. And, um, mm-hmm. And then I, I bring in a little bit of sand play therapy, which it is of Jungian origin, uh, mm. which is much more psychodynamic. And it's interesting mm. some of the things that come up in that, you know. So, mm. um, and then a, a recent therapy that I would love to, it's not recent, it's been around for a little while, which is functional analytic psychotherapy, which is a behavior mm. therapy still, but it's focused on the relationship. So what comes up in the here and now? So the belief is that what happens out there in our lives will will play out in the therapy room. So mm-hmm. the therapist needs to be attuned to that. And when they see it, acknowledge it, they call it clinically relevant behavior. And then if they see that clinically relevant relevant behavior change in a good way, they they reinforce it. So they might say, so for example, if a client is, um, say it's like social anxiety, uh, and a client just doesn't open up. They they don't talk to people outside. Maybe they, they talk, but they don't go deep. They're not building connections with people. And obviously that's affecting them. And then that happens a bit in the room. They give short answers, not being rude. They're just being a bit reserved. And then maybe one session. So that's a clinically relevant behavior. Then one session that client starts to open up or suddenly becomes vulnerable on an issue. The therapist might say, Oh, you opening up really moved me there. Like I really felt close to you when you when you were vulnerable. Mm. So that's then reinforcing hopefully that behavior they did that they're going to want to do it more often in the therapy relationship. And as that gets stronger, you then help them move that out into the real world. So mm-hmm. I really like the relational aspects of so it feels very psychodynamic, but it's from like a very almost like CBT framework. So it's it's mm. like the, and um that's one i would love to see research for ocd i don't know if there's any studies on it at the minute but mm-hmm. i know like mm-hmm. mclean um ocdi part of harvard one of the best ocd places i think in america all the world um some of their therapists use it alongside erp so mm-hmm. it's something i'm trying to learn at the minute um so that really fascinates me i'd love to see that and cft in combination with erp and um yeah, I, I mind. I read a study recently on Jungian sand play, that they did nothing but Jungian sand play for three kids of OCD and it worked. The argument was it took like two and a half years. So mm. <laughs> that's, that's the downside. So maybe one day I would love to research like, okay, with young kids doing sand play mm. and ERP together. And, mm. and how would that work over like three, four months? Um, yeah, and then obviously it's not an area I massively care about, but I'm glad they're doing it, which is psychedelics, psilocybin in particular. I'm glad they're doing it in the States and in the UK. They're researching it currently. Um, so I think that's important as an alternative mm-hmm. potentially to SSRIs. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, if pharmaceuticals can invent uh, even better SSRI, I'm not against that. Um, mm. I know there's one pharmaceutical company in the States currently looking at a different it's not, it won't be an SSRI, but it will be aiming to do the same thing, but it's, it's targeting a different thing in the brain, glutamate, mm. I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, that's been trialed at the minute and that could potentially offer an alternative to serotonin reuptake inhibitors. Mm. Mm. Do you feel hopeful about where OCD research and community is headed? 
Yeah. Um, it's exciting. I think there's there's a lot of air room for, for growth. And I think us questioning ERP a bit um, is going to help that. You know, mm-hmm. people stay open-minded. Um, mm-hmm. it, it will be a battle at times, like it is for the ICBT lot at the minute. They're getting pushed back against uh, from ERP practitioners. Um, mm. But again, tribalism, you know. Um, mm. But for me, it's not one or the other. It's it's and, you know. Yes. So ERP, yes. I think for a long time, will have a, a, a decent seat at the table. Um so that's mm-hmm. yeah there's nothing to fear mm-hmm. really yeah yeah oh i mean we could talk for hours and hours about ocd as as we do and um <laughs> this has been so interesting stuart and um i know victoria and i are also excited to go a little deeper with you in our patreon episode um maybe a little bit more personal but as we Close out, I'm going to ask you the questions again as you ask your guests, as you are closing out your interviews. Um, words of hope for somebody who is listening and in the thick of it with their OCD. Hmm. It gets better is the first mm-hmm. thing I want to say. Um, that might be that it takes time and that you have to read a ton of stuff try different therapists if you can, if you need to, um, keep questioning, keep looking, but not in an OCD way. Like don't question mm. an OCD way, you know, um, at some point you have to trust the therapist and try them out for a bit. You know, I've seen that before mm. people flip flap and they haven't given the therapist a chance, you know, mm. um, just what was if this is not the right one for me, you know, it's almost like mm. relationship OCD, but with therapists, yes. therapist OCD. Um, yes. But yeah, I think that there's so much out there uh, and don't get disheartened if, you know, if, if you try the ERP, definitely try it with other therapists and try it with therapists that will bring in other therapies like ACT or CFT or FAP or whatever else it is. Mm. Um, and even then, don't give up. There's maybe there's a different formula for you as an individual, you know, mm. Uh, mm. keep looking, learning, um, but also focusing on living your life, you know, like what matters to you, spend time in doing that. Like we talked about functional analytics psychotherapy just now and reinforcing, you, you want to reinforce the behavior you want, which is whatever that is, you know, try and be proud of yourself for doing it. Um, and then you're going to want to keep doing more of that interest. And then OCD naturally gets a little bit weaker and smaller because we're not focusing on it as much. Mm-hmm. I think that's really important. And, and Victor mm-hmm. Frankel talked about that, right? And man search for meaning and, and he created logotherapy, which used to be a therapy for OCD. Hmm. And that was main, largely about meaning. And, and there was a tool within that, which was very similar to ERP called paradoxical intention, mm-hmm. um, like in the early 1920s or something. So, but anyway, meaning is so important. Mm, yes. I think. Yes. Yes. Thank you. You pick up the phone and call 20 year old Stu. What do you say? Um, I would say it's okay to feel, um, Mm. feel heavy emotions and it doesn't make you weak if those emotions break you temporarily. Um, and just speak up, just, just share with someone and, and be honest with them when you share. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Good. Mm. Mm. And what's your billboard? Yeah, uh, <laughs> I hate this question. <laughs> you ask everybody. I know it's the hardest question. Um, what would I put on a billboard? Cheesy as it is, I just say love yourself. Hmm. That might not be an easy thing for some people, and it wasn't for me. It took years of therapy, but um, try and speak to yourself nicely. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. I like that. Mm. Mm. Thank you. It's really an honor to have you on here. Yeah. And, um, again, so much more 
we didn't even ask the questions that I had meant to ask, <laughs> which I knew would happen anyway. But um, maybe we'll do a part two at some point and get to those. Um, but I really, we appreciate you yeah. and everything you offer the OCD community is tremendous, invaluable, life-changing. Um, it's a lifeline. And any of our listeners, if you struggle with OCD or if you know somebody who does, please listen to the OCD stories. Um, Stu also has a Patreon community um, where they go deeper, offer offer a little bit more there. So um, yeah, just to know that you are such a gift to the OCD world and to just the world. Thank you for being here with us. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. It's been a real pleasure talking to you both.